The suit, and I'll stop on this point, is does not charge that there were false books and records, does not charge a wide range of false statements. It really is a narrow case saying the failure to disclose Mr. Paulson's role in the selection of the securities and its interests is what constitutes the fraud here, and it's going to be a tough case for the SEC. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from San Francisco today. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law. And I practice law as well. <laughs> and I do as well. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And Bob, we want to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com forward slash law. And Clio, which is a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, this week, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, announced that it had filed civil fraud charges against investment bank Goldman Sachs. The suit claims Goldman Sachs allegedly withheld information from investors about a financial product related to subprime mortgages, knowing that the product would fail from the start. This led to huge investor losses. Also named in the lawsuit, the only individual named in the lawsuit, in fact, is Fabrice Touré, I may be mangling that name, a vice president for Goldman Sachs. Well, in a statement responding to the lawsuit, Goldman Sachs has denied the charges claiming that they are unfounded in both law and fact. The suit comes during a push for new financial reform regulation by the Obama administration and Congress stemming from the financial crisis and banks receiving millions in bailout money and a largely unregulated market on derivatives. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this lawsuit, uh, civil fraud, what it might mean for investors and for uh, the potential for reform of Wall Street. Well, our first guest today is attorney Jacob S. Frankel. He's from the law firm of Shulman, Rogers, Gandel, Porty, and Ecker, PA. Attorney Frankel brings a perspective as a former state and federal criminal prosecutor and former SEC enforcement lawyer to his leadership of the firm's securities enforcement, white-collar criminal, corporate investigations, and corporate governance practices. He conducts internal investigations for public, non-public, and non-profit corporations and represents individuals in internal investigations. He's also an expert witness in cases involving corporate investigations, securities enforcement, securities fraud, stock manipulation, and white-collar criminal defense matters. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Attorney Jacob Frankel. Thank you very much. Pleased to join you. Next to join us today is Attorney Palmer C. Hamilton, a member of the Government Relations Practice Group at the law firm Jones Walker. Uh, Mr. Hamilton has held several senior posts within several administrations, and he's been active representing clients in Congress for three decades in the areas of finance and government affairs. He has been active in the political realm in support of various candidacies, including his service as chairman of the re-election committee for U.S. Senator Richard Shelby, the ranking committee, the ranking Republican on the Senate Banking Committee. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Attorney Palmer Hamilton. 
thank you. Look forward to talking with you today. Well, Jacob, since you've got some direct experience with the SEC, maybe you can give us kind of an overview of the government's lawsuit against Goldman Sachs just to kind of set the stage for us. Well, interestingly, as major a player as Goldman Sachs is in the industry, and the fact we're talking about a lawsuit involving synthetic and creative new securities called collateralized debt obligations uh, relating to the uh, subprime market, in essence, what the SEC has done is is charged a bare-bones, garden-variety securities fraud case in which, in essence, it said that Goldman Sachs sold synthetic securities but did not disclose that the package of those securities was structured by an investor who intended to short the security, short-sell the security, and also affirmatively misrepresented who structured it. And Really, at bottom, what we're talking about is the type of instrument that you know, those of us on the phone, people who are listening, are not buying these securities. These are securities that are bought by sophisticated investors, particularly institutions, and that's who the SEC says was defrauded in this transaction by Goldman Sachs and by one of its 31-year-old vice presidents. The the suit, and I'll stop on this point, is does not charge that there were false books and records, does not charge a wide range of false statements. It really is a narrow case, saying the failure to disclose Mr. Paulson's role in the selection of the securities and its interests is what constitutes the fraud here, and it's going to be a tough case for the SEC. This uh, this case raises issues on a number of levels uh, in terms of the SEC, in terms of uh, litigation, uh, and also uh, on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, Palmer Hamilton, you're in Washington, D.C., you're in government relations. What's your initial uh, reaction to this case and what it might mean in Washington? Well, I think we were already moving toward a deal um, and passage in the Senate, frankly. I think the die was cast a long time ago, and the Goldman story perhaps simply fast-forwarded that process. The irony is that the Goldman situation really has nothing to do with the legislation. There's nothing in the uh, legislation that would affect uh, what uh, occurred or is alleged to have occurred or the enforcement that uh, emanated from it. Um, And the issues that are dividing the parties really is irrelevant uh, are are irrelevant to the Goldman case. Well, Jacob, you mentioned or kind of hinted that there was a, a securities someone who was interested in uh, short selling those securities. Was that Paulson and Company? Is that and why? If so, why aren't they named in the lawsuit? Well, the the reason it is Paulson and Company, and the SEC identifies Paulson as that party. But for the SEC to bring charges, we have to be mindful that what the SEC does is its role is to monitor and address conduct, policy, and practices in the securities industry and has civil enforcement authority specifically to bring cases if it believes that a party has violated the federal securities laws. In in essence, when the SEC conducts an investigation that is thoughtful and thorough, as you have to believe, you know, it, it, it must have done before bringing a case against a titan such as Goldman Sachs, and does not name 
Mr. Paulson or his company in the case. It's simply because there is no evidence that he actually engaged in any wrongdoing that is actionable by the SEC. Remember, this case has nothing to do with individual victims of the fraud, to use that word in its broadest sense, and parties against whom they may bring claims. This is strictly about who, in the SEC's view, may have violated the federal securities laws. Well, it isn't that, isn't that to Goldman Sachs' favor here in the sense that uh, we aren't talking about individual investors. We're talking about uh, sophisticated, uh, high-level investors all around here. And, uh, you know, they, they all should have known better, shouldn't they have? I mean, they should have understood what was going on here. Bob, exactly. I mean, and I think that's one of the defenses that Goldman Sachs is going to assert is that, you know, the disclosures were adequate and appropriate that with respect to the role of Mr. Paulson and his company um, or his funds in the selection of the the subprime residential mortgage-backed securities that would become part of the abacus instrument, the actual instrument that was being sold, the collateralized uh, debt obligation, that that you know they they Goldman Sachs are asserting that they had confidentiality issues too. I mean, we're, you're talking about securities that, by their very definition, were volatile, and in an open market such as ours, you have people who bet on companies and values of securities to go up. You also have those who take the other position, expecting that you know they will go down and can profit from doing so. And there's no question, Mr. Paulson made a lot of money here, and I think that actually touches on another very important point, and that is Goldman Sachs and Mr. Touré structured this transaction. They did not trade in this transaction. This case is as, it really is as narrow as we were discussing before, which is the disclosure and the omission to disclose what the SEC says are material facts. There's going to be, I understand there's, that uh, the Goldman is going to be uh Coming to Congress, uh, that the uh, CEO of Goldman is going to be coming to Congress next week to to testify, uh, and that uh, this this Fabrice Touré may may also be appearing before Congress. Uh, Palmer, any thoughts on on what the questioning will be there? What they'll be looking to find out? Well, I suspect uh, there's going to be a bit of grandstanding, frankly. Uh, but the timing, I don't know, is particularly important in this instance in that my sense is that uh, we're close enough to a deal on the underlying legislation that uh, there's a fair chance that the deal will have been reached before the testimony begins, that uh, issues that are separating uh, Chairman Dodd and Senator Shelby have been narrowed to such a point that they really are dealing in words and phrases uh, rather than uh, general issues. Um, As I said earlier, uh, what is at issue really doesn't relate to the the Goldman situation. Uh, It has a political impact, but substantively it really doesn't relate. The the key issue still dividing uh, the chairman and the ranking member have to do with resolution authority, and you probably heard a good bit in the press about uh, not having an ongoing bailout, a permanent bailout, etc. The reality of the situation is a little different than the rhetoric that's being generally used across the board. Uh, the reality of the situation is that Senator Shelby 
has a fundamental trust in the market and a distrust of unintended consequences by government intervention. Uh, Chairman Dodd is concerned about systemic risk that could result from the government not intervening uh, during times of crisis, and he wants the mechanism to deal with that situation. Uh, Senator Shelby would rather uh, take the chance of uh, the systemic risk uh, and allow the bankruptcy process to go forward. Uh, he thinks the distortions of intervention create a greater risk for the market over the long term uh, than the risk during a crisis. And th that's a very fundamental philosophic uh dispute, which unfortunately uh, has been pretty much ignored uh, by the press in covering. They, they've covered it as, uh, is Congress going to clamp down on the banks? The irony is that the banks really don't care terribly about this particular issue. There are other issues in the bill they care very deeply about and are very much engaged, but this issue, which is front and center, and it's the rallying cry across the board for both sides, really isn't the issue that the banks are concerned about. The banks have other issues in the legislation, but resolution authority is, is not uh, the issue that is of great concern to them, but that's where the battle is being fought. So the Goldman Sachs case is, is, is perhaps a spur, but, but not uh, a real issue in discussing the financial that's overall right. it, litigation. It, it, it is a catalyst in the sense that uh, it is a point the administration uh, and Chairman Dodd and Senator Reid can use in saying we need to have take action. We can't allow abuse by Wall Street. Uh, but the reality of the situation is legislation has nothing to do with what's been alleged in the complaint. What do you think, uh, Jacob, that this lawsuit is going to do ultimately to Goldman Sachs from a remedy standpoint? What's the government seeking and, and what's the damages they're going to have? You said from an earnings standpoint in terms of damages? Yeah, what what is, what is the government seeking from Goldman Sachs, and how much money uh, are they, do they want? Well, the short answer is we, you know, the the way the SEC styles its uh, styles its complaints is that it asks Goldman Sachs to disgorge what it describes as illegal profits, uh, ill-gotten gains, and to impose civil monetary penalties that can mirror. Those, uh, you know, th those illegal profits or ill-gotten gains. Now, on to the extent that you're talking about what Goldman Sachs made, Goldman Sachs claims that it lost money in the transaction. Um, the, the, you know, the, the commission has asserted that at least in terms of fees, that Goldman, if I remember correctly, uh, made uh, I think it was uh, fifteen, uh, fifteen million dollars. But I could be mistaken as to the as to the exact number. I think the real issue ultimately here is more the reputational harm that attaches to Goldman Sachs just by virtue of the SEC having brought the case. And I don't mean to go afield, go off from your question. I'm more than happy to come back to it. But I think one of the real issues that, that has come into play this week is what appears to be the haste with which the commission moved or the SEC moved from approval by the commission as a body, the three, the five commissioners who we now know, now know voted three to two to authorize this action, and then within 48 hours, this lawsuit has been was brought instead of the historical, well-accepted, time-tested practice um, of there being some further settlement negotiations before actually bringing the case. So at the end of the day, I don't think to the Goldman Sachs' bottom line, uh, 
you know, the actual dollar amount is going to be critical. But I think the mere fact of the bringing the case in the manner that it did, actually the SEC um, the, the SEC compromised the ability to get a quick settlement, which potentially could have been the best outcome for both sides. It, what what would be the reason for taking the approach that 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 it's taken here? I mean, is this grandstanding in some way? Is that what you're suggesting, or or is there some other motive? Well, there you know, there certainly is a confluence of events that suggests that there may have been some political motivation here. You know, and you know, in short, we really don't know because I mean, what we do know from media reports is that last Wednesday the commission voted to authorize the actually the actual file filing of the case. And typically after that occurs, um, there is further negotiation of a settlement. What happened here is that Goldman, many months ago, submitted what's called a Wells submission. That is a written submission outlining its position as to why it believed the SEC did not have a basis for bringing a case and should not bring a case. And the fact that it made what it reasonably believed was a was a persuasive submission, typically the opportunity is given to a potential defendant if the commission decides otherwise and authorizes the action to resume settlement negotiations or actually engage in settlement negotiations. So it certainly appears as if, with all of the activity and the imminence of a vote on Capitol Hill, that the SEC may very well, the enforcement division may well have said, this is an opportunity that we can take advantage of from a timing perspective, to bring this case. The other thing that I think is striking was, you know, was to file a lawsuit, to actually file the case within 48 hours of authorization, you know, that is usually reserved for temporary restraining orders, where the SEC needs to stop an ongoing harm, ongoing wrongdoing in the market. This is conduct that occurred two years ago. This is what I would call a normal course investigation. So there is there are a good number of reasons here to question whether the motivation, particularly the timing for bringing this case, was something more than just what the SEC believed were the merits of the case. The uh, SEC's been hit pretty hard by the general public and, and some congressmen about their lack of enforcement in the past. Is this uh, this lawsuit a sign of uh, or vigorous enforcement as we move forward? It's certainly a message that the, there's no question the SEC wants us to send a message through this case, and no no different than just the the, the prestige of Goldman Sachs having been sued. The fact that Mary Shapiro has been the new the new chair of the SEC, the new enforcement director Rob Kazami have have for you know their entire tenure, as brief as it has been, have been taking a very strong position that you're going to see a much more aggressive, much more assertive SEC. This case certainly fits within that message. At the same time, you almost have to question whether this is a Russian roulette or bet the house strategy, because by bringing the case in the manner that it did, Goldman Sachs had every reason to dig its heels in, and in a battle of the titans, if it goes a distance, one 
certainly is is going to prevail if they cannot reach an agreement, you know, before trial, you know, before the outcome of a trial. And if for the SEC to lose this case, it would be an absolute devastating blow to the agency. Well, this is a lawsuit that is a civil-based lawsuit, if I understand it correctly. Uh, we, you know, what are the potential for criminal uh, actions against Goldman Sachs, and uh, why didn't they bring a criminal action in, com- in conjunction with the civil action? And, and if, if I may just bri- briefly, you're absolutely right. This is civil. The fact that most major investigations conducted by the SEC have a companion parallel criminal investigation where the Department of Justice may look over the SEC's shoulder while the SEC can certainly share its entire investigative record with federal prosecutors, with the FBI, you know, that, that's, it's a one-way street because when the Department of Justice conducts investigations, it uses a grand jury and that information is confidential. Following an investigation such as this, typically if there's a basis for a criminal case, it is filed at exactly the same time. The fact that one was not filed and in reading the civil case, in what are clearly questionable allegations. I'm not saying the SEC will not prevail, but certainly there are a lot of interpretive issues from a factual standpoint. It's relatively clear to me and many other colleagues in the enforcement bar that there will be no criminal case. Well, gentlemen, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the SEC suit against Goldman Sachs and Wall Street reform. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, and I are joined by our guest, Attorney Jacob S. Frankel from the firm Shulman, Rogers, Gandel, Porty, and Ecker, and Attorney Palmer C. Hamilton, a member of the Government Relations Practice Group at Jones Walker, and we're talking about Goldman Sachs case. And uh, Palmer Hamilton, uh, you, you've heard 
Jacob talking about the the potential uh, the, the 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 potential for there having been political motives here. Uh, I wonder from from your perspective, uh, do do you see politics at play uh, in this lawsuit? And and if so, do you see uh, the need for maybe a, a different kind of, of financial overhaul legislation or different issues to be addressed in in different pieces of legislation? What are the implications of this from where you are? Well, my instinct is to uh, generally not be suspicious, but the circumstances here certainly do uh, lead to some suspicion. Uh, as uh, SEC, former SEC Chairman Harvey Pitt said in a column uh, out today, uh, having a partisan vote and rushing ahead is not the modus operandi of the commission normally, and particularly to have it come right at this critical moment during the debate over reform and the uh, Republicans in the Senate had sent a letter 41 saying that they would not vote for cloture, and uh, if that had remained unchanged, it would have changed the dynamic in the negotiations in that in order to get a bill, there would have had to be further negotiations. So, um, you know, I, no, I don't know that we'll ever know what the real story is, and, and maybe there's not a real story, but it, it does make you wonder. Um, the legislation is, as I say, uh, not related to Goldman, but Goldman's going to have an impact on it, I think. I mean, is there a, does the SEC have a particular political agenda here, or is this an issue of, again, you know, we're, we're, we're playing guesswork on whether there's a political agenda here, but, but if there is, is it the administration's uh, broader it, it would, agenda, it, or is there something be, specific to the SEC? If, if there was uh, a political angle, it would be the administration, not the SEC. It would be the uh, administration saying to the SEC, we need some help here. It, you know, as, as Jacob pointed out, there are a lot of institutional reasons why, if you're the SEC, you wouldn't necessarily want to do it this way. So, I, I, you know, just from a self-interest standpoint, I can't imagine why the SEC would want to rush forward. Jacob, let's pause for a second and kind of transition from some of the, the things that uh, Palmer's talked about you know, in terms of the regulation and so forth. What's on the horizon coming of the government and the SEC in terms of regulating this large, uh, the unregulated or just not regulated market in derivatives? I understand there's just trillions of dollars that are being handled by very sophisticated investors and Maybe perhaps the same kind of a problem that exists with the economy, and I think that's exactly one of the one of the reasons that you know that the SEC is looking for the biggest bang for its buck as it advocates uh, loudly for broader regulation, given this you know this broad area of unregulated instruments and, and practices. I think part of the challenge that the SEC has had for decades is that the activities and particularly the instruments that are sold on Wall Street often move much more quickly than the regulator is able to keep pace. And I think one of the things that Chairman Shapiro has committed to doing in her approach to, you know, to, I don't want to say just the restructuring of the agency, but the refocus of the agency is to make sure that the SEC is, in fact, 
capable of keeping pace. You look at a case such as this, and you wonder, well, if there were other regulations in place, would we not have had the SEC versus Goldman Sachs and Fabrice Touré case? And the short answer is actually no. Because if you, you can, we go back to the very first question, this is a disclosure case. On the other hand, you have an agency that does monitor, address, influence practices and conduct in the securities industry on Wall Street. And what, they're, what they do look to do is ensure that there are adequate regulations to protect investors. And we're really, we're really now at a time where there, without question, are two totally separate, maybe even three separate classes of investors, where you have the average investor, which pretty much makes up the majority of investors. You probably have the more affluent individuals who have, you know, who, who benefit from the use of money managers who are far more sophisticated. And then you have the institutions that play in this entirely separate world of synthetic instruments. And I think that's really where the SEC is trying to catch up and will do what it can to ensure that it is able to keep pace because there is a recognition that these are the instruments that were central to the financial markets challenges that we've been experiencing um, over the past few years. Palmer, it seems that uh, some people have been saying that the, the derivatives market and collateralized mortgage-backed securities and the unregulated things are, are, are make the subprime mortgage crisis look like a drop in the bucket. What's your estimate on that? Well, the subprime market uh, was the catalyst uh, which gave rise to the loss. Had it not been for the subprime, um, then I don't know that we would have had the cascading events that we did. But, I mean, there's no doubt uh, I, I think there's unanimity uh, among uh, banks as well as on the Hill that uh, reforms are necessary. And frankly, I think the you know the numbers people keep talks, tossing out the uh, we're in agreement 75, 80 percent. I saw a figure 85 uh, percent, and and that really is true. They they are in great agreement. Uh, overall in terms of the legislation, but then you get to the remaining 15 to 20 percent of details and uh, you get a great deal of, uh, for example, uh, the role of the Federal Reserve going forward. Uh, Senator Dodd wants to put the Fed in charge of all banks over $50 billion and any bank smaller than that would not be regulated by the Fed, and that would result in the Fed, uh, many Fed banks, uh, the Atlanta Bank would be uh, go from 687 banks to two banks, uh, Dallas from 498 to three. St. Louis wouldn't have a single bank to regulate any longer, the St. Louis Fed, the Kansas City Fed, the same thing. So, I mean, there's there are huge changes in the bill. The, the bill sets up a financial stability oversight council uh, made up of basically the banking regulators who would police non-bank uh, financial entities, uh, insurance companies, hedge funds, etc., those that are systemically important. Uh, that would be a sea change, as Jacob said, in terms of the oversight. And there's really uh, a fair amount of agreement in the details of uh, the legislation, but then you get into something like the CFPA, the Consumer uh, Financial Protection Agency, and how much authority it would have under the legislation. Uh, for the first time, the CFPA, no other regulator, 
uh, bank regulator presently has the ability upon a finding that some practices what is deemed unfair, deceptive, or abusive, uh, it can regulate or prohibit that activity. So it broad authority being given to the CFPA uh, with no checks and balances. Then you get into the uh, preemption, federal preemption, um, and that's hugely important to banks providing services nationwide or regional banks providing services across their service area. And uh, whether federal preemption would continue to exist is uh, an issue that has to be addressed in the legislation. And uh, state uh, attorneys general right to enforce both federal and state law. The House bill has it. The Senate bill, you know, it's a jump ball. Um, so there, there, there are huge issues out there, uh, but there's great agreement as well. A lot there to talk about, but our time runs short for this program. Uh, and uh, before we wrap up, we like to give each of you an opportunity to to share your closing thoughts on this topic. Uh, wish we had more time to talk about it, uh, but we don't. Uh, so before we conclude, uh, Jacob Frankel, uh, Let's hear from you, and, and also would like to invite you to uh, tell our listeners how they might be able to follow up with you if you if you care to do that. I appreciate the, the both the opportunity to have engaged this discussion with both of you and with uh, with, with uh, Palmer, and uh, and my closing thoughts are: the SEC has been saying for a fair amount of time now. Under the new administration, it will be bringing a lot of cases. We'll be bringing cases that relate to the subprime market. Um, it has been reorganizing to, in some respects, be leaner. I hate to use the word meaner, but it's going to have, have a meaner effect. It's not just in these synthetic instruments. Uh, they're particularly aggressive in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act area. Um, as we have seen in general financial fraud, the the number of parallel investigations corresponding criminal proceedings that we see matching up with SEC cases, it is a much more aggressive enforcement environment um, in the securities markets. And I think what the SEC has been projecting will occur, we are now just beginning to see that out of out of this new Mary Shapiro, Rob Kazami team. And for follow-up contact, my email is jfrankel, J-F-R-E-N, K-E-L at Shulman Rogers, S-H-U-L-M-A-N, Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S dot com. And telephone in Maryland is 301-230-5214. Thank you, Jacob. And Palmer Hamilton, your closing thoughts. Well, I appreciate, um, Craig, uh, chance to visit with you this afternoon. I, I suppose that uh, we're probably looking at a short time frame for this particular piece of legislation. Uh, I suspect the Senate uh, is likely to act uh, in the coming weeks, and then there will be a uh, conference, which the administration hopes will be concluded and action taken before Memorial Day. But uh, we're looking at a short time frame. As we go forward, I would hope uh, People, as they listen to the debate, will try to look beyond some of the facile phrases that are used and look to the substance of what's going on. We're looking at vitally important issues and the proper functioning of our market system. And I 
hope the the Congress will look closely and and not fall into some unintended consequences. Should anyone want to contact me, I'd be happy to visit with them. Uh, my email address is phamilton at joneswalker.com. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the show today. And, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And a special thanks to our guests. I appreciate uh, their taking the time to share their thoughts on this topic. And a reminder to our listeners that the shows are also available on iTunes in the podcast library there. And we can also get uh, CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts, including Lawyer Lawyer. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center to find those. And as Bob mentioned, also on iTunes, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.